I have seen my entire life, literally from childhood, every way to burn out and blow up in ministry. Pastors and missionaries who were once in our home, I ask about them, oh, he's out of ministry, he had an affair, he ran off with the money, everything up to including suicide, uh, sadly, every kind of, of ministerial attrition and tragedy. And I've been a pastor or a missionary myself because we went to Mexico. We were career missionaries ourselves in Mexico, where I grew up for seven years before returning to to our church in Huntington Beach. And I, I just saw the toll it took around me. And just as importantly, I felt how the pressure and the relentlessness of ministry, if you engage with people, I, I could feel what it was doing to me. So I quite literally wrote the book in self-defense. This may be the first of its kind, friends. Not many would dare do such a thing on a podcast and in front of the whole world. But we here at the Living Waters Podcast are filled with love, care, kindness, wisdom, courage, handsomeness, and humble modesty. You've heard us mention his name many times before, but today you'll get to finally meet him. We have with us Ray Comfort's pastor, Bruce Garner, but the big buildup is related to why we are actually having him on today. This, friends, is somewhat of an intervention-slash-church-discipline matter. Ray Comfort. You're making me nervous. Did you or did you not (laughs) recently fully unbutton your shirt in public while riding your bike? I had to. It was 90-something degrees. (laughs) Pastor Bruce. Life-saving measures. (laughs) World-renowned evangelist riding on a bike with a Living Waters hat with a shirt unbuttoned. Yeah, but my, my... Chest is so hairy, it just looks like I'm wearing a jacket. <laughs> right. Behold, the Lord's anointed. Was there three or four hairs there now, right? Well, you, you justify it because you have Lucy in front of you. Yeah, she's, my dog's in front of me, and it just looks like... Yeah, good... She's catching all the yes, attention. That's right. Lucy's not wearing a shirt. So. No, no, she's, she's fully clothed. You know, Ray, I think I would take the unbuttoned shirt over the half shirt you used to wear. I used, used to wear half a shirt? The shirt you had cut off. No, 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 no. I outgrew that shirt. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it was. Oh, friends, as you can tell, we're going to have a lot of fun here today. Bruce, great to have you with us. Great to, great to be here. Thank you. Honor. Yeah. Bruce, which one of us have known you the longest? I believe that would be you, Mark. That would be By me. far. Yeah, that would be yeah. Mark. Well, we're going to get into that and a lot more frowns. But before that, we have a comment. This is from Matt Glee, my favorite podcast. I've been listening to the podcast for years and have gone through many different shows over that time. Usually around the six-month mark, I move on to a new show, but not so with Living Waters. After a year of listening, sorry, it took me so long to write a review, Living Waters remains my favorite podcast. In fact, my love of listening to these men has only increased over that time. I think they have their own podcast. (laughs) There you go. Did you sign that one? Must be. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. It said I'm I've been listening to podcasts, yes. not the podcasts. Yeah. That clears that it. That makes it make sense. And friends, before we jump in here, usually we talk about a bunch of resources. Today there's only one. Uno. You'll know why that is fitting that I said it in Spanish. The resilient pastor on Amazon. Is that the best place to get it, Bruce? It is. Yeah. Amazon. Although it'll be available wherever good books are sold. Yeah, good books. <laughs> so few brick and mortar bookstores anymore. Amazon's well, I was feeling sorry for the brick and mortar people that hear us just say Amazon, <laughs> the giant. Yeah. All right, friends. As you heard, we have Bruce Garner here with us today. Ray Comfort's pastor. Mm. Man, we've mentioned that so many times on the podcast. I am going to. Embarrass Bruce horribly today. Oh, wow. Impossible. I so love listening to him, and I am brought to tears regularly as I hear his godly eloquence. It's just so neat to listen to you teach. Very kind to say. Yeah. Bruce, you why do you not well. use notes? Yeah. Sí, por qué? You know, the one time I used a lot of notes was in a seminary preaching class uh, because they said I had to. And about two-thirds of the way, it was so terrible, I, I gave up and walked away from the podium. And the professor wrote a note and said the, the first two-thirds were terrible. The last third was good. Do that. So I just stuck with Was that with during it. the third where you walked out? When I walked so away from there. the podium, that was, that's when he said it was acceptable. Everything <laughs> up to that. that point had been terrible. Oh, and he man. sent you a note. Oh, yeah. They're, these, these seminary profs are pretty brutal. So they, he, they'll you, tell he, you in writing... 
so you so, can be haunted by it for years. So exactly he, he what used you're doing notes. Wrong. <laughs> he made me use notes, and it was a disaster. Yeah. Yes, there's yeah. something liberating walking away from your notes, though. You know, I think easy. Me and Mark, we use notes. We use stepping stones because we mm-hmm. know our fallibility. But there's something wonderful walking away from them for about ten minutes. Oh, and yeah. Just. Well, you, you connect with the people, yeah. and there's something magical that happens with that. But Bruce, do you at least have any kind of outline in I terms of notes have, at the pulpit, we, or is it in your mind? We generally provide a, a half sheet in the bulletin. I have that in front of me so that I can remember what the congregation has for in front of them, uh-huh. so that I can keep track of, of the slides that are behind me. And, and I might, I'll write three or four words regarding my introduction if I have a particular illustration or story, I'll, I'll write three or four words somewhere in my own handwriting on that note. But that's, that's about it. And wow. your, your anecdotes are fabulous. I, I, Thank you. And the, even the little touch of humor every, like, three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I think Spurgeon called humor in a sermon like lightning on a dark night. You just, mm, you just oh, go, yeah. ooh, and then you wait for the next one. So it good. keeps you going, and it's great. I love yeah, it. Yeah, humor can be a little tricky because if, if all they remember is the joke, then you failed. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Uh, but That's if, all I if, if the joke helps people lower their defenses, re-engage their listening so that they can get the biblical point, the biblical idea, then that's it's worthwhile. Yeah. So hopefully Bruce, that's what's happening most of the time. Do you do thorough notes, though, before you go to the pulpit that you review and look at, or is no. it just, you just log it in your mind as you go? Pretty much. It's all in the brain. Wow. Ah, that's pretty amazing. All right. Back to uh, how we all know each other. So obviously you're a race pastor, but before that, you knew Mark Spence. I did. Yes. Now, back in 1990, what what were you at that point? Were you a missionary <laughs> pastor? What I'm trying to remember exactly. Based? First of all, this is a country, and we have a constitution and laws and rights. Uh, sounding like an interrogation, so I'd like uh, <laughs> I reserve the right to call for an attorney at any moment. Uh, in the 90s, I was on staff at the church I now pastor, and I think you and I first started noticing each other in, in the world, because I was briefly and unsuccessfully a college pastor at that same church. <laughs> unsuccessfully. And so Fr- Fred was One Fred of my best friends you. called my college group, which grew to be pretty large, That's but awesome. he, he called it the church at Corinth, <laughs> if that gives you any idea. <laughs> oh, this is where we met Dennis Eastman. Going. Dennis oh, okay. Eastman came oh, into the picture. Boy, it was awesome. Dennis Eastman that called it, as long as the name's out. It was Dennis <laughs> yeah. Eastman that would say, how, how are things at the church at Corinth? And, yeah. Again, that haunts me. Uh, exactly. I, wrote a, I wrote the book for a reason. I'm yeah. traumatized, and I'm working it out in public. Well, listen, you baptized my wife back on October 23rd, 1994, which was a Sunday. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. would have been uh, that would have been two years out of Bible college for me, two years into seminary. Wow. Wow. So, Oof. Bruce, you suffer for the Lord as you pastor in Huntington Beach. Yes. Somebody <laughs> has to take that, uh, you yeah. know, take that pain on the Lord's behalf. Yeah. yeah so, uh, so under the Lord's orders, rather. Yeah, and you've been doing that for a while, but mm-hmm. but tell us a little bit about your background, because now, normally, obviously, Oscar Navarro's with us here. Sure. Oscar is the least Mexican, Mexican person I know. Mm-hmm. You're what the about mo- Eddie, you're the Eddie mo- Roman? Oh, Eddie. and Eddie, of course. Yes. But you're the most Mexican, non-Mexican Correct. person I know. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's a trip, because you're, you're as white as snow. <laughs> but when you spit Spanish, man, it's like, it's, it's fun to live in Southern California and look the way I do and speak Spanish. Boy, you yes. must hear people talking about you all, all the time. Mira el gringo. And I acknowledge it on my way out the door <laughs> in Spanish saying that you've, you've all been very kind. Thank you. We'll see you next week. And John hit and the sometimes ground. They, they scream. Sometimes they literally scream. What? Like, oh no, he speaks Spanish. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good time. That's wow. really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the, the background and how that all happened. Sure. I, my parents have been missionaries in Mexico, several places in Mexico, but most of their lives in Chihuahua, Mexico since 1971. I was not born in Mexico, but I was raised there. So, so yeah, there is a switch inside of me that, that can flip, and I just become a, a Norteño, uh, a Mexican from, uh, from Chihuahua. How do you say that again? Norteño. Norteño. Notice it's not Norteño. No, no, no. Norteño. Fun fact, because, you know, ADD is a cruel mistress. Norteño music, that's the umpa with the with the accordion uh-huh. and, the, oh, yeah. and the tuba. And you that, play it. That is an import. That is called Northern Norteño music, northern music in Mexico, because German settlers brought that in. That's a polka oh, wow. that wow. the locals have adopted. And so do you play Amer- it? 
Absolutely not. <laughs> I, actually, I actually don't care for it. Uh, Is that the mariachi but, sounding stuff? No, no, that's oh. uh, that's central Mexico. I'm talking about the guys. They literally have an accordion and a tuba. Yeah. And if you hear very nasal singing, as my pastor used to say, from the heart through the nose, and an accordion <laughs> and a tuba. No, what does that sound like? I don't want to do it. Veggie yeah. tales. YouTube is your friend. <laughs> yeah, the Veggie tales when they come out with yes. the accordion and tuba. Veg- yes, is that it? it sounds like that. But here's the trippiest thing about uh. it. We are way off topic, as expected. <laughs> what is typical in that culture is what we have here is gangster rap. They put cartel songs. <laughs> Including things that just what? happened last week ago, massacres. I mean, serious oh, no. crimes. They put that to that particular like, what does that kind sound of like? music. It's terrible. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the whole thing's sad. Again, in my personal experience, oh, I love wow. a lot of Mexican music, just not the stuff I grew up. Mariachi around. music wow. makes me laugh. It just it's just so joyous, <laughs> even yeah. if it's midnight now going that, on and on. Now, now mariachi music, I love that. Yeah. Uh, wow. yeah. Hey, listener, have you ever imagined yourself having a box of goodies for you to give away to every friend, loved one, non-believer that crosses your path? Well, now you can get one. That's because Living Waters is giving away 10 free boxes of goodies every single week. That's eight in the USA and two overseas. And this is being made possible by a faithful partner of ours that has given us funds to make these resources available to you for free. Each of these boxes has $100. That's right, $100 worth of tracks, books, and even your very own podcast mug. Go to livingwaters.com forward slash podcast, fill out the form, and then listen to the end of the episodes where we will be announcing our winners. Livingwaters.com forward slash podcast. Good luck. Would you play it in your car just kind of... Mm-hmm. Prepping for a sermon, getting ready. To- I don't know about prepping for a <laughs> sermon again. I can't get the emotional segue. That's, uh, Turn it into worship music. <laughs> yeah, that that would be tough. So, Bruce, so you 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 were in Mexico. You grew up. To your answer parents- your question before my brain took me in a bad direction. Uh, yeah. My parents moved to Mexico to become career church planning missionaries when I was only two years old, and with the exception of second grade and seventh grade, that's where I was educated. Wow. So that's that's why so I'm, public school there. Private schools was not allowed to enroll in public schools because we were uh, foreign immigrants. But right. private schools, I was almost always the only English speaker, the only American in my class. So, but you learned. I mean, and it was all in Spanish. The education. I don't remember not knowing Spanish. Is wow. probably the quickest way of saying no, it. That's wow. amazing. And when your name's Bruce Garner, because that doesn't translate very well, <laughs> uh, Brucey. You know, that's a problem. Brucey. And, and yeah, it it just. It taught me to get along with people. Yeah, because if you're you're the only kid that looks different from Did everybody, you get beat else. up a lot. In I was Mexico? just gonna say, were you? Yeah, bullied? I was intimidated and bullied a little bit, but again, that's where the you know God uses all kinds of strange things to make us who He wants us to be. And I learned to smile and make jokes and befriend people quickly, so that they didn't turn on on the gringo. The craziest thing that happened, and it was mostly in good fun. In one particular elementary school for three years, any time the teacher left the room, which was crazy, you should never leave elementary hmm. children completely unsupervised, <laughs> someone would scream World War III, and what that meant was the world versus the United States, with me as the United States sole representative, <laughs> and they would throw everything they could get their hands on. Are, are you serious? Are you, Absolutely. At you and in I didn't, particular? No, at me, because it's World War, the world against the United States. So it was, States. A, it was a fun thing? I mean, for them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I didn't mind it until they threw a compass. And that, oh, I wasn't oh, no. a huge fan of uh, the compass, right between barely, the yeah, barely lost, missed me. You lost your direction. Oh, so that's with, great. if that's your setting, you learn to make friends. Yeah. Um, all right, Bruce. So, I stepped on a great dad joke by Ray oh, Comfort, yeah. by the way, and I'm sorry. So, okay, we want to jump into, into this book. I, I have to say, I wish you weren't here so that it didn't seem like flattery, but this, this is a phenomenal book. Thank you. And I think I could say that from the standpoint that I pastored for six, seven years. Mark did as well. Ray, three and a half. We've all been tribulation. Yeah. Yep. Not <laughs> tribulation. Yeah. Um, and man, this is good, Bruce. Yeah. I really appreciate it. And, and, and there's I, a simplicity about it and anecdotal. And yeah, you don't get tired of reading short, short chapters, which mm-hmm. I love. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Easy's right. It's phenomenal. It really fills a, it, it fills a gap 
You know, I think that there are a lot of books on a lot of different subjects. There are some for pastors, but I think what I really loved about it was that the practicality of mm-hmm. it. So give us a backstory. How'd this thing come together? Well, I'm three generations in, in church ministry. My grandfather was gloriously saved. One of the meanest, most profane sailors to ever fight in World War II was gloriously saved shortly after that. My father was the first born in a Christian home. His older sisters endured my grandpa for a little while before he got saved. Mm. My dad was saved, heard his father preaching about missions all the time, and went to Mexico. Took the Romans one sixteen seriously, mm. took my mother. They uh, had me, and then we went to Mexico together. Well, they took me. I was two. I didn't, I didn't get, uh, I was not consulted. I yeah. just woke up in Mexico. Well, glorified luggage is what you call it. I, uh, I, was, I was a photo op. I was a, a prayer card, a prayer card accessory. Okay? missionaries got to have prayer cards. And, you know, uh, it helps cute. if you got a cute kid. Yeah. Don't do it for us. Do it for the child. Yeah. Right? Uh, don't, don't support us for our sake. Um, but that means that, especially as an only child, I've been three generations in ministry, and one of the burdens or blessings of being an only child is they take you everywhere, and you sit with the grown-ups. So I've been hearing missionaries and pastors talk about ministry from an age so young that they probably didn't know I was understanding what was being said. So that means I have seen my entire life, literally from childhood, every way to burn out and blow up in ministry. Pastors and missionaries who were once in our home, I ask about them, oh, he's out of ministry, he had an affair, he ran off with the money, everything up to including suicide, uh, sadly, every kind of of ministerial attrition and tragedy. And I've been a pastor or a missionary myself because we went to Mexico, we were career missionaries ourselves in Mexico where I grew up for seven years before returning to, to our church in Huntington Beach. And I, I just saw the toll it took around me, and just as importantly, I felt how the pressure and the relentlessness of ministry, if you engage with people, I, I could feel what it was doing to me. So I quite literally wrote the book in self-defense. Oh, wow. wow. Hmm. Well, you know, th- there's a section in the book, I want to touch on the outline in a moment, but I have to read this. You said, I don't know exactly what happened to you, but if you've been pastoring for any length of time, you've probably had some doubts about how long you can do this. Mm-hmm. Quote, I feel like a guy who is driving over the speed limit on a narrow mountain road without barriers. It's the grace of God I haven't driven off. This is from, I think, Bob Burns' book. Yes. Wow, a lot of people, Bruce, don't know pastors go through this stuff. Mm-hmm. Then you go on to say, the pastor is not alone. My national survey of senior pastors indicated that about one in three of them are in deep trouble with deep damage to themselves, their families, and even their relationship with God. When you can't see forward, try looking back instead. If you fear that God may have sent you into ministry and then abandoned you in the midst of it, look back at his faithfulness before trying to figure out the way forward. A grateful look back kept me on my own narrow mountain road as a very young and lonely pastor, and it's kept me on the road several times since. Hmm. Is that what you're referring to, Bruce? Yes, sir. About, there were several influences. One, uh, just a lifetime of ministry and watching people that I thought were solid. Hmm. As I started to preach, preachers who were more effective preachers than I am, who seemed to have a deeper life with God and know the Lord far better than I did, go by the wayside, be taken out by scandal. And more than that, the big problems always get most of the attention. But I would say that for every pastor or missionary or even Christian worker, you don't have to be on a pastoral staff if you're seriously committed to your church and you're working with people, because people are, are going to be the number one burnout factor. Yeah, You're going to suffer through this. For every one of them that has some spectacular newsmaking moral failure, there's a hundred, maybe even a thousand that are bitter. Wow. And these are, the, these are the guys that preach because they have to. Fully a third of the senior pastors in my national survey said things that would be alarming in the life of any Christian, such as, they love the Lord less since they became a pastor Whoa. because of the way the pastorate has gone for them. They don't desire a closer walk with the Lord. Their family f- wants them to leave the ministry. They would do anything else if they thought they could replace their, their income. Wow. So that seeing that jadedness, that burnout was always notable to me. And about 10 years ago, I started volunteering as a law enforcement chaplain. Oh, yeah. 
And my son, my older son, started his journey toward the career he's now enjoying as an infantry officer. And as I started spending time with police officers and getting to know a few soldiers, I noticed that some were resilient and happy and thriving and peaceful, and others were burned out to the point of being broken and even dangerous. Wow. So my research question was, is there anything, God is sovereign, but is there anything under our control that he's given into our hands that we need to address Mm -hmm. that we can control to make sure that we stay the course for life? Is there something we can do? That was the question that I asked. That's what led to the dissertation. And from the dissertation, the academic dissertation, the result was this book. This was for your doctorate degree? Correct. Okay. I want to say this quick, and then, Ray, I I want you to chime in on something. You know, friends, I know you're listening to this now, and we do have a number of pastors that obviously listen to us, but the overwhelming majority are not. But friends, this is extremely relevant to you because you need to stand in support of your pastor. Mm -hmm. And knowing what your pastor goes through, knowing that the struggles, the challenges, the hardship, the discouragement can equip you to know how to pray for them and and how to be that encouragement and how to be that faithful church member that'll help them along the way. Absolutely right. And and to be clear, especially for you, if you're a pastor listening to this, if I'm anywhere near the truth, you already know that I'm telling you things that are true to you. For the vast majority of people who are just good, sincere Christians and lay people in the church— There's a mistake that can be made when we talk about this topic, and there's a ditch on either side of the road. One is to say this is, pastoring is the hardest work in the world. Everybody burns out. Everybody's on the verge of death, and that creates a lot of false, ungodly pity on behalf of pastors. That's not at all what what we're pleading for here. We are pleading and asking and hoping that the book will lead you to an understanding of what vocational ministry is is actually like, because there's a ditch on either side of the road. One is, my dad used to joke, what a job. We work one day a week, and it's a split shift. (laughs) Uh, Get to the church probably seven, eight in the morning, you're done by noon, go eat, everybody tell you you did a great job with the sermon, and then you reset and have basically six and a half days to come up with that one sermon again. A lot of people, I've been asked many, many times, what else do I do for work? (laughs) And I've had a few people ask me, really, that... Like, you find enough things to do during the week? And my answer is, most weeks, not every week, but uh, usually I can find enough to do. Oh, man. Yeah, there there is a lot of misunderstanding. You know, Ray, a lot of people don't know that you actually pastored, as I mentioned earlier, for three and a half years, and and they don't recognize there are challenges involved with pastoring. Yeah, as you said, three and a half years, the time of tribulation, Mm -hmm. I learned to empathize with pastors, and I hated every minute because I didn't like counseling people, and I've often said that I'm not a shepherd. Mm. If uh, someone brings me a, a, a sheep that's mm-hmm. lame, I want well, to stand on your own feet and go and reproduce because right. I'm a pastor by nature. <laughs> and so that three and a half years I did was a very good grounding because I've been trusted with so many pulpits and I so mm. appreciate the fact that a pastor trusts me with his pulpit. It's like giving your car keys to a stranger sitting in the back with your family and saying, please stand the right side of the road. Mm. And I love what John Wesley said about pastoring. He said, if he had to preach to the same people every week, he'd send them and himself crazy. And that's, <laughs> how, that's how I feel, to come up with a fresh sermon each week. Because if you say the same joke twice, you're senile. Right. He's right. losing it. He, I heard that last week. He's gone. <laughs> and, so it's, and, and then you've got the counseling. You've got church splits. You've got mm-hmm. financial problems, building problems, all these sort of things. So... I so empathize when I get into a pulpit of a pastor and I say, thank you for trusting me. Yeah. Right. Just a very quick response. First of all, you're extremely trustworthy in any Bible preaching pulpit, Ray. And and your your love for for me, for my family, for our church, that comes right through. And those of you who are are listening who may not think of the local church side of Ray Comfort, he's a churchman. He's not often in... In specialized ministries like the one you do so well here, there's a disconnect from the local church, and that is not the case at Living mm-hmm. Waters, which is one reason I'm so thrilled to uh, to partner with it, support it, and promote it yeah. however we can. You guys are your, your church people, and and that that is, after all, what Jesus promised to build, but he does it through all the gifts. Amen. The pastor, the teacher, the evangelist, the counselor, we're all needed. This book just has the heart of the the one who has been entrusted to the care, with the care and the leadership of a local congregation. Right. Those people are my my heart and my concern. What's the Thank name of the book again? The Resilient Pastor. It's the, and the subtitle is How to Remain Effective and Finish Well in Ministry. And I should say, 
or writing a book on being a resilient, healthy pastor while you're still pastoring is the second dumbest thing anybody could do. <laughs> yeah, the first is a book on humility. The first is a book on humility. Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know... When's, it, when's yours come out, by the way? <laughs> humility, now I attained it. Um, you know, Bruce, thank you for your kind words. And, and I do need to mention as well, friends, Bruce serves on the board of our ministry, which is such a joy for us because he's also raised pastor and there's just great accountability there. And I believe and, in this ministry with all my heart. Yeah, I really do. And, and brother, it's, it's, it's shown in your support and your, your, your service on the board, the wisdom and guidance you've helped give us has been phenomenal. Really appreciate it. You know, Mark, you, you and I serve together in pastoral ministry. And, you know, we travel a lot now. We get to preach the same sermons in different churches with new audiences, like Gray said, with our cheesy jokes and people still laugh. But we experience those challenges as well. I mean, there's a lot of pressure that people don't realize is real for the past to where some want to quit and it's intense. Yeah, you know, Bruce had brought something to me uh, several years ago. I had sent him a list of accountability questions. I don't know if you remember this. And you added questions that were geared towards the ministry-minded individual, which included entitlement, Mm -hmm. that Mm. a pastor, after some time, is going to be feeling some entitlement. Mm -hmm. I think it was John Piper who said that the pastor will feel an entitlement within the sexual realm, and he will view porn more often on a Monday morning or even between services as a place of release of something, which absolutely blows my mind. And he said he stopped asking his students have you ever looked at porn to asking the question, when was the last time yep. you looked at porn? And that falls also in the realm of entitlement. Mm-hmm. Mm. Absolutely insane when mm-hmm. we begin to head down that realm. I'd like you, if you can, for just maybe a moment, sure. expand on that. And why is that so important to, to hit that right in, at its core? For those who may be listening who are ministry leaders, I'm going to say something that's going to sound hard, and I don't mean it to be. It's it's just, it's simple biblical truth, but it's not meant to wound, but to help you think through the spiral you might already be starting. At the root of all these things, and all sin, of course, is pride. Mm. And there's so many different pressures in ministry. Most pastors, I serve a wonderful, healthy, happy congregation that loves me and the rest of our pastoral staff. We're in a very sweet spot right now. It's taken quite a while Mm. to get there. The Lord's been very, very kind, and we are in a a sweet spot right now. So I'm not speaking of myself, but I'm speaking of, again, a lifetime of three generations of of stories. Many pastors are undercompensated. They they literally struggle to to make ends meet. They are overworked. Uh, Most pastors in America are solo pastors. Many pastors in America are bivocational pastors. In other words, they're they're working a secular job to pay the bills and getting what amounts to a stipend. Okay, mm. many pastors often are are misunderstood as well because, and it's not the people's fault. Nobody knows what anybody else does for a living and what it's like until they try to do it themselves. Yeah. <laughs> so that constant misunderstanding, financial pressure. Most of us like to be liked. Would you agree? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Many people in ministry want to love and serve people. And it's a very small, subtle step between loving and wanting to serve people and wanting people to like you. Mm-hmm. And if you, if, if deep in your heart, if you really want and need to be liked, the drip, drip, drip of criticism that is just a normal part of working in the local church and working with people, that'll tear your heart out. Yeah. So you put all of those things together. And maybe the pastor's wife is going through her own struggles. She's discontented. One of the kids is rebellious. The mindset very quickly turns to these people have no idea what I go through. They have no idea what sacrifices I make. Therefore, I am going to self-medicate. I'm going to practice some ungodly self-care by helping myself to the money I'm going to find comfort in in a woman in the congregation, which constitutes abuse of, mm. of his spiritual authority and leadership over her. It, it it's all it's an enticing invitation laid by the world, the flesh, and the devil mm. to tell the pastor a biblical truth: you matter, <laughs> no. and you need to find comfort, and then directing him to the exact wrong resources resources of his own devising, manipulation of his own efforts to find comfort in himself, whatever that may be. So that 
that entitlement when ministry is difficult and you don't feel like things are going the way you thought they should. You don't think you're getting what you deserve. Fully a third of the pastors in my survey said plainly. I asked very pointed, anonymous questions because I wanted them to tell me the truth. Yeah. Fully a third of them feel like they deserve more than they're getting. Well, if you sincerely believe that, you need to take that to the Lord mm. and to godly trusted people. But if you don't do those things, if you don't take it to the Lord, you don't take it to godly trusted people, that pressure is going to manifest itself somewhere. And it's, thankfully, it's usually just bitterness and jadedness and quitting. Often it's, no, I'm going to stay here and make this a good thing for myself. And that's how pastors end up in prison. That's how pastors end up in the newspaper scandal accusations of, of shenanigans with the money, yeah. all that pressure, unless it's given to Christ, is going to go somewhere and do something destructive. Wow. Mm-hmm. You know, Bruce, in the book, the, you you quoted uh, Paul Tripp in mm-hmm. one of my absolute favorite books, Dangerous Calling. Mark mm-hmm. and I had read that together a long time ago. And you talked about how one day in the midst of frustration and a disagreement with his wife, he said to her, 95% of the women in our church would give anything to be married Love to me. to be married to me. <laughs> and what did she say, Bruce? She said, well, I'm in the 5%. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and the man. footnote, that's one of the footnotes in the book, there is no recovery from that kind of... Uh, <laughs> yeah, from, that reminds me, I think from it was... From that kind of reply yeah. from when your wife. Did you ask Charisse the question... I don't think we have a lot in common. Oh, no. How'd that, how'd that work out? This is this is unrelated, but actually, no, it's not unrelated because this goes to pride, okay? I thought it would be <laughs> romantic to give my wife books that she would enjoy reading. <laughs> These are not books that I would enjoy because we have very different taste in reading. These are books that I thought she would like, and I didn't want to spend a lot of money on it because I knew I was going to be wrong pretty often. <laughs> so I went to the Huntington Beach Public Library and I got a book and she very politely, she's a very sweet, godly woman. She said, no, thank you. I'm, I'm happy with what I'm reading. And I brought a second book and she said the same. The third time I brought six books. I thought, shotgun approach. One of these is going <laughs> to I spread them all out and she, again, very sweetly and politely said, uh, thank you, honey, but this is so sweet that you keep doing this, but I, I'm reading, you know, I've got those three books over there and they're very good. Thank you. And it hurt my feelings. Okay. Did you ever get your feelings hurt? It happened to me. That one time I got my feelings hurt. And what I said was, well, Sharice, we just like different things. Okay? There's the pride. I don't know if you can hear it, right? Yeah. I'm right. You're wrong, right? I'm on a whole other level. And, that's and her response. Was. And her response was, we both love you. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. And Mrs. Garner might actually have outpunched Mrs. Tripp with that one. <laughs> yeah, that she is, might have. That's, that's a that one. is pretty good. That's a, that's is. a neck and neck race on oh, uh, pastors man. being cut down to size. I've never met Tripp, but I'm, I feel in good company with him based on what he said to yeah. his wife and what my wife said back oh, to me. Oh, that's that's golden, man. Yes. I'm going to put that in my in my quotes list. Terrible. I was reading in your book about the Texas funeral. <laughs> yes. Thing was that you that, that was involved in that? No, no, a, that oh. was a that was a, a family friend who who's still pastoring, who shall remain nameless. But I'd grown up. That's one of the stories I had grown up with. But as part of my research, I called him and had me had him tell me the story. Every bit of it is true. Wait, uh, you got to share the story. Yeah, you nobody knows it. Yeah, that, fair enough. Por favor. S- sorry, friends. All the world has not yet had time to read this book. Um, <laughs> A past friend of mine in Texas, because of course it had to happen in Texas, was officiating a funeral. And right before the funeral started, uh, he was officiating the funeral of a, of a godly older lady in, in his church who had finally gone to be with the Lord. And a man in the reception, no, not, the, not the reception line, but he's greeting people as you tend to do, right, before the service starts. And the woman's son comes up to him and angrily curses at him, says, I hate you and everything you stand for. I don't believe a word you're about to say. I don't want you to do my mother's funeral. Mm. And he says, buddy, I'm sorry. It's her dying wish. We're here. Your whole family's here. We got to go through this. So he started and the young man contented himself with being loudly disrespectful during the entire service including dropping some very loud obscenities in the middle of the pastor's sermon to the point that the pastor stopped and said, please, son, out of respect, I know you don't like me, but your deceased mother is right here. Just out of respect for her, can you keep it together for five more minutes? Well, when the final amen was said, family tensions were revealed. A angry family member jumped up 
raced across the chapel and punched that kid square in the face. (laughs) Blood went everywhere. And then apparently this had been a long simmering family disagreement. The extended family chose sides and a basically a old scale WWF WWF old Western movie. They fought each other to the point that the Houston police department had to come out and separate people, take people into custody. It was wild. And the point of that was you never know what you're going to get in ministry. You think you're just going (laughs) to preach the gospel and try to comfort the grieving. You might end up in a brawl. And that was before cell phones and videos and YouTube. (laughs) Unfortunately, we don't have the footage. That would have made the top 10. (laughs) That'd be viral. That'd have 9 million views. You know, Bruce, on page 21, you said, the moment the ministry becomes about the minister, Mm. a course is set for disaster. Mm -hmm. Steer clear, pastor. A lot of leaders have shipwrecked on the deadly reef of self, connected to what what we were talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, I've shared this before on the podcast, but when I was a new believer, I had become a you know, a part of a church youth group. I was I was barely 16 mm. and it felt really good because, you know, I had this testimony. I was a gangster and all this crazy stuff. And mm-hmm. so I was the head of the youth group. Everyone's paying attention to me and I, I'm feeling all this acceptance and love. And sure. over time I became old news, new kids came and you know how that goes. And so one day I came up to my youth pastor. I go, hey, hey, you know, I just want to let you know I'm going to be leaving the church. And he goes, oh, really? Why? I go, well, you know, I'm just, I'm just really not feeling the love anymore. Oh. And he looked at me and he had <laughs> sense that, that the Lord had a pastoral call in my life. And he looked at me, he goes, you know, he's I have a question for you. Um, one day when you become a shepherd and you don't feel that love from your Ooh. flock, are you going to leave them too? <laughs> Even as I say it right now, I'm feeling Ouch. the daggers. And man, that was a, that was a real wake up call to me. I ended up staying and, and it really was, you know, just eye opening. I realized how so self-focused I was. And, mm-hmm. and Bruce, would, would you say it's true that what a lot of pastors end up doing is they look to ministry as a source of supply mm-hmm. for legitimate needs rather than looking to the Lord as a source of supply. And, and they fail to recognize that really their congregation is a medium through which they have the opportunity to fulfill the two greatest commandments. That's it. By loving God and all he's called them to be as a shepherd and loving those people by, by glad sacrifice and service of love. I don't even know if I can answer uh, at length because that, that was beautifully stated. I couldn't have said it better myself. There's this constant temptation to love the gift rather than the giver. Mm. And ministry is a gift. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that, that he sustained himself because we have this ministry by the mercy of God. Ministry is a mercy. It's not only a calling and an obligation. Paul says it's a mercy. In other words, if you're in ministry, that is a gift of mercy to God from you. Yeah. You didn't earn it. You have to be qualified for it, but even the qualifications come from him. Yeah. You know, we're raised very kind and encouraging regarding my preaching, but I'm keenly aware almost every week as I write the sermon, since we talked about me not using notes, that could be over later this afternoon. Hmm. I'm a brain event away (laughs) from needing all the notes in the world or not even being able to speak at all, right? So when when you think about your own frailty compared to the immensity, the eternality, the sovereignty of God, how could I ever make it about me? And I have, same as every preacher in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes as a preacher, well, maybe I'm special and especially sinful, but there's always a temptation to step back and admire your own work. Yeah. And preachers who are listening, you'll know, some of us in our insecurity like to troll the lobby hoping for somebody to say something nice, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, It's a bad, bad, it's a bad habit. Right to, yeah, to, what was it? to need that affirmation and that encouragement from people. Mm. If they sincerely give it, thank them for it, praise the Lord for it. But if, you, if you're fishing for it, if you need it to sustain you, you've, you've, what you've said, you've moved a little bit away from your security and your identity in Christ. Mm. You're trying to derive things from the work and from the congregation that truly only Christ can faithfully mm. and always give you. Amen. I think it was Ravenhill that said, to often preachers become fishers of compliments for men rather than <laughs> fishers of men. That's, <laughs> that's, that's stinging because I can relate to that. Absolutely you know? right. And that entitlement piece, you know, making the, the minister, making the, the work about the minister rather than the ministry, that's so easy to do because you are the one doing the preaching, but through whose power? Amen. I mean, you couldn't, none of us literally would know how to learn language had God not given us the capacity to do so. Yeah. He will one day through illness or death, he will take that capacity away from us. Mm. Yeah. 
we won't always be able to preach. I've, I remember when we first went to Mexico, I heard my, my father said something to me that is now true for me. Because we went to Mexico now 25 years ago. And in talking about our, the work we were going to do together there in Mexico, my dad said, son, I've preached more sermons than I'm going to preach. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of sobering as an only wow. child to hear, okay, dad's saying he's past halftime. Mm. He's in the third quarter. Me too. I don't think it's the two-minute warning yet. I don't think we're deep in the fourth quarter. But honestly, I don't know. This literally could be, and I'm not trying to be overly dramatic because preachers have a bad habit of that. <laughs> this podcast could be the last thing I do. Yeah. It, it's happened to friends of mine. Uh, well, who I've attended their services because the Lord took them home to me in an untimely, his timing is perfect, but from the earthly perspective, why him, why now? That could be any one of us. So every day is a gift. Every day is an mm. obligation and a responsibility before the Lord. If you can keep that in front of you, it keeps you from this deadly price. Well, I, I was... I didn't have a midlife crisis because I couldn't figure out when the middle of my life was. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bruce, I was really struck by that where you talked about in that, in that chapter where you said everyone goes home mm-hmm. and that, yeah, it, it all it all ends up ending. And mm. yeah, you know, Mark, I, I wanted to, to just uh, touch on this with you. You know, I think the two important things that, that people fail to do who are in ministry, whether pastors or ministry leaders, is self-reflection and having accountability. You know, I've often said, when I ask the Lord to give me more of him and less of me, he shows me more of me, which makes me want less of me and more of him. And so speak to that, Mark, the importance of just recognizing, like like Bruce talked about, you know, and and Paul touched on, right? What do we have that we didn't receive? And if we received it, why do we boast as if though we didn't? Like it's somehow self-created. So self-reflection, accountability. Well, self-reflection is so necessary. As you guys know, that that is something that is big on my agenda there on, on the daily. So when I go to get inside my car, I don't just leave to go about my business. I reflect back on what just happened. Mm. When I go up inside my office, I sit down, I reflect upon what just happened down inside uh, the studio. I, I want to continually think back on what went right, what went wrong, how do I make things better? Right. How did I include the Lord? How did I not include mm. the Lord in the midst of that? That, that is the kind of the idea idea of a Sabbath, right? We look back on what happened and we look forward as to what's going to happen. Mm. It's very necessary. Jesus said to uh, the disciples, come aside and rest a while. We all need to rest. We all need to reflect. We all need to have that forward thinking as to what is happening inside of our life. Mm. You mentioned the accountability. You know, Ray and I, we were talking about this uh, the other day inside my office. You know, what does a pastor do? Where does a pastor go when he dibs into the benevolent fund? Mm. Right. And the book Dangerous Calling, we, we had touched upon this a little bit with Trip. Sometimes a pastor feels like he's an island onto himself. Yeah. You know, I can't go to my associate or my assistant. You know, the senior pastors, the leading pastor is just in a different place. He's on a different plateau. Mm-hmm. They're not going to fully understand what I'm going through. Well, now what do you do? You go to other senior pastors, perhaps, or other trusted friends that are in other ministries. Maybe it's a parachurch organization. Where do you go? What do you do? Because you're an island onto yourself. Mm. Well, besides memorizing Psalm 51, which seems to be a a right place to be, right? You know, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. There has to be the idea, and it's very scriptural to do so, to have the accountability. Literally meaning to lean on someone else, right? To, yeah. to, to have the help and the hope from someone else who has perhaps gone down that road or whose eyes are wide open on the scripture where your eyes are not. Mm. Because maybe your eyes are focused a little bit too much on the man in the mirror as opposed to looking up. Yeah. We need to strengthen each other. We need to lift up each other's arms because we will all be inside of a place where we need help, where we feel like we're hopeless and not hopeful, where we are helpless and not filled with the help that is designed and given by God as laid out inside of Scripture. Mm. And this is where I, 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 I go to Bruce and I say, Bruce, what do you do mm. as a senior pastor or as a lead pastor or even as a, a leader of a ministry or an organization? What do we do? Where do we lean when we feel like nobody knows what I'm going through? Nobody understands. Yeah. Nobody can possibly understand the temptation that is happening inside my life or the pressure from inside and without as Paul lays out in, to the Church of Corinth. Such yeah. a great question. And you're exactly right. And that would be my, the second thing I would say that, that I do. Probably the most important chapter in this book, for those of you who may care to look at it, the, the answer to the research questions is that God has given us six traits I discovered at least six traits that God has provided that are under our care so that you can sustain 
your spiritual and mental, emotional health as a person. For instance, one of those, the first of those traits is calling and preparation. If you're not called to ministry and you're not prepared for ministry, of course, you're going to burn out and blow up. God didn't send you. You're on your own authority without his gifting and calling, or maybe you have gifting and calling, but you haven't been trained and prepared and mentored and discipled for the work. Okay, So the most important chapter, I think, that has had the most traction with pastors that I've taught, missionaries that I've taught, is a chapter about our identity in Christ. Mm. And I include some things there from another author, Dr. Neil Anderson. So the first thing I do is I've been using some of the things that the scripture says about my identity in Christ for probably 28 years. These are just scriptural truths of who the Bible says that I am, not in my own strength, not in my own identity, but who I am in Christ. For instance, I am a friend of Jesus. I am a part of the true vine. I am a sheep under the care and in the flock of Mm. the good shepherd. See that last bit? If I'm just another dumb sheep under the care of the good shepherd, a lot of that pressure rolls off of me because we've all heard that sermon. Hopefully you haven't preached it where the pastor kind of condescendingly says to his congregation, I'm your shepherd, you're just dumb sheep. Sheep are dumb, they need the shepherd. Well, dear preacher, so do you. Yeah, You're not a <laughs> co-savior, you're saved just in the same way everyone else was. So my identity in Christ comes first. And when I see the riches of who I am in Christ, independent of the finances, the budget, the complaint, independent of ministry. Because if I could not be a pastor tomorrow, my identity in Christ is completely unchanged. Amen. There are not two Christian identities, where there's a Christian identity for pastors, the Green Berets of the Christian family, and then there's an identity for everybody else, the the poor schlubs in the back of the bus. No, no, we're all the same in Christ. It's just our callings and our giftings are different. So I lean first on my identity in Christ, I look at that almost every day in some measure. I meditate and read upon those scriptures. I remind myself of who I am and who Christ is, Hmm. because that's where my strength comes from. My pastor used to say, one big difference between God and you is God doesn't get confused and think that he's you. Hmm. (laughs) That was a little complex, but if you think through it, right? People often think they're God, and God never suffers under the illusion that he's, yeah. under, he's one of us. And the second part is then, that's my identity, that's vertical, and then horizontally, Mark, I do have good friends, brothers in Christ, scattered around the country, One a very healthy, wonderful group chat sprung up in the heat of the pandemic mm. with past, two pastors, friends of mine who were on the East Coast. It's just, it's all out there. Oh, I wouldn't say it's raw, because we, we keep it biblical and Christian, but it's real. And when people are struggling, when when men are close to the point of breaking because something's going on in their lives, their families, their churches, we share those burdens with one another. Mm -hmm. And there is a deeper level of understanding and empathy if you're in that same in that same ministry. I love that, Bruce. You know, what you, you said you do with yourself kind of reminds me of Milton Vincent's book, uh, mm. The Gospel Primer, and then also what Jerry Bridges talked about in The Discipline of Grace about preaching the gospel to yourself every day. Yes. It's so key to remember our identity and who we are in Christ so that, that, yeah, we don't tie ourselves up in that. And Ray, I wanted to ask you real quick. I mean, we talk about accountability, but, but the fear of the Lord mm-hmm. is key for pastors. How, how does a pastor cultivate his fear of the Lord. I think it's just understanding the revelation that God gives of himself from Scripture. Abandon everything you've ever heard from the world about God mm. and embrace Scripture so that you do cultivate that fear of God because through the fear of the Lord men depart from sin. And you can fool anybody. I think Lincoln had that great quote, which is mm-hmm. so complicated, I'm not even going to try it. You can fool anybody, really. You can get into porn with your phone. In the yeah. back room, no yeah. one knows. Right. And so you've got to have that accountability directly to God. Bruce, I want to change the subject a little bit and ask you about when you're 26, you got shingles, you got deeply mm-hmm. depressed and very, very tired. Mm-hmm. You made me laugh out loud when I read what happened about you falling asleep in church. Can you relate that story? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, uh, when I was on the staff of the church, I'm, I'm senior pastor out now. I was taking more than a full-time load at seminary and trying very hard to prove my worth as the youngest man on a staff. <laughs> and see, there's the, there's the pride piece again. There's the insecurity. I didn't have security in my identity. And literally every other person on that staff was older than I was. 
more accomplished, more educated than I was. I was the only one who spoke Spanish on the staff. I had the Spanish ministry for the church. The people I was working with, for the most part, were working class people who had just arrived in the United States, most of whom had a barely literate level of education. So I couldn't exactly, I could minister to them, but they weren't a safe place for me to share my troubles. I was a newlywed besides, mm. and I married a woman who was fathered by my, my, my father-in-law, is simply one of the most godly self-controlled men. I've, he is the most self-controlled man I've ever met, and he he pastored for about 50 years before wow. happily retiring, and now he's part of our church family. Wow. So I'm living up to a lot. Um, I've got a very challenging academic load, a very lonely ministry, a new wife who was fathered by a better man than I happen to be to this day. So that's a lot, okay? Yeah. So I got so worn out, I got shingles, TMJ, and mononucleosis during during seminary. <laughs> Lucky. Okay, yeah, that was, it was great. Uh, everybody should get mono and shingles in their mid twenties. It's uh, it's wonderful. Gives you a nice floor. You know, it can't get you, much worse than shing- that. Yeah, it shows how stressed you are because usually shingles mm. comes on later. Correct. Like in your I'm 50s, looking forward. To, I'm looking forward to the comeback uh, <laughs> from shingles. Return but of the shingles. Back in those days, and Mark, you'll remember you were you were part of the church way back then. We had these these uh, very ornate chairs and a very ornate pulpit. The pastor preached from an ornate pulpit, and two or three of the pastors would sit in these very ornate chairs behind the pulpit. I don't know why we did that. It's kind of like the mafia, right? And the boss is addressing <laughs> is addressing the troops, and his uh, his lieutenants are sitting behind him, say, yeah, give it to him. I'm not sure what any of that was about. Uh, but I was so exhausted, I fell asleep facing the congregation, sitting behind my pastor as he preached. The man. only thing that saved me was I had my very large King James Bible open in front of me on my lap. And I just remember waking up and thankfully I didn't jerk awake, right? (laughs) And have one of those spasms. I just remember very slowly opening my eyes and realizing, I don't know where we are. Like I don't, (laughs) this sermon point doesn't make sense. And I realized I've lost several minutes and I very, (laughs) I looked up and I nodded wisely like, boy, this is good stuff, isn't it, folks? Aren't we all so blessed (laughs) to be here today? The thing that made me laugh was the way you put it in the book, you know, I fell asleep in church and you say, we all have done that, haven't we? That's what made me laugh. You you say, yeah, we've all just nodded off. And then you say, I was facing the congregation. Yeah, I was facing the congregation (laughs) while my boss preached. That was the kicker. Yeah, yeah, it's bad bad times. You know, Bruce, we're going long intentionally today. There's just too much good stuff. I, I, I read the entire book. I marked it up. I took pictures of, of all the different you know, things that I wanted to touch so on. Kind. Thank and, you. And we're, we just don't have enough time. But I do want you to touch on on a, a couple of things. You know, in, in a section called The Habits of the Finish Line, you highlighted the following. Be aggressive about getting regular rest for yourself. Make regular escapes with your family. Heal yourself of the Iusta syndrome mm. and break those electronic chains. Can you just touch on, on some of that? First of all, I would say this. If, if there's a part in the book where I'm a hypocrite, it's that one. Mm. Remember, I, I told you on the front side, I wrote this in self-defense. And these are habits that have actually changed and helped me a great deal. But I am not a master at some of the very things I've prescribed, especially breaking the electronic chains. That phone never stops because I'm on call for the police department. I've got two adult sons that have now moved away. I've got a congregation. We've got missionaries overseas. Anything could happen at any point. But the, the, the idea is simply this. If you don't have a finish line, you will fail hmm. because no matter how long the race is, there's always a finish line. I've been fascinated by ultra runners. These are people who run more than marathon distances. Some of the longest races in the in the world are 200-mile races. Wow. Okay. Um, Seriously? Yeah. There's a, a Tahoe 200 that was just recently <laughs> run. Okay. That's one individual running 200 consecutive miles. Unbelievable. Okay. Takes about 60 hours. Needless to say, these are 0.01% athletes. Yeah. But they have a finish line. They train for the effort. They don't run all the time. They prepare to run, but then when it's over, it's over. And they put enormous resources back into themselves through nutrition, massage, medical care, all kinds of things then are given to replenish the athlete. If you leave it up entirely to other people to decide whether you get to rest, you never will. Yeah. Hmm. 
you never will. So one of the most important habits is to, and this is again rooted in insecurity, to distinguish what a genuine emergency is. Yeah, you talked about the urgent versus the emergency, and people want to make their urgent your emergency. They want to make their their sense of urgency your emergency. Yeah. Okay, so I'm a police chaplain. I actually volunteer with two different departments. Even in the world of law enforcement, genuine emergencies are rare. Mm, (laughs) They're terrifying, okay? They're incredibly absorbing. They require a lot of effort and resources, but it's not every single call. Right. Does that make sense? Mm. But, you know, Pastor, we need to come over here right now. We've been fighting. Well, they've been fighting that way for 14 years. (laughs) (laughs) It will be okay if you have dinner with your family. But again, that insecurity kicks in. And that your sense of pride in self, they need me, I must go. Mm. And you do a terrible disservice to your children. If your children get it in their mind that their time with you depends on whether anybody else calls, mm. you're toast as a father. Yeah. Because they probably will. I mm. love the build, build the fence portion. The word picture in the book is your children, God bless my boys, ministry kids are, are raised in a fishbowl. And because that is inevitably true, you as a dad have to do better than the fishbowl and you have to build a harbor. Yeah, I love that. Hmm. Yeah, and even the part where you talked about how, you know, you're, you're pastoring at the church where the, the school also is and your yes. kids, your, your, your window, it, it lo- overlooks what they're doing. And My just, office overlooked their entire yeah. life. And the whole thing of your congreg- talking to, to, you know, the teachers and stuff, telling me, look, don't treat my kids any different. Right. Don't give them breaks, but also don't be harder on them because they're the pastor's kids. That's huge. Since the vast majority of people who will listen to this are, are people in the church, let me make a plea on behalf of your pastor and especially his kids. Don't expect his kids to be anything more than the godly Christian kids every kid in the church should be, and the church is trying to disciple them into being. There really aren't two classes of kids mm-hmm. where there's normal Christian kids, godly Christian kids, and then super godly extra Christian kids who are pastor's kids. And pastors, if you, please, 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 if you ever make the motivation for your children's obedience that you're a pastor or people are looking, you run a terrible risk of embittering your children. Because if the standard is, I have to be a certain way because my dad might get fired if I'm not that way. Hmm. Or I've got to be a certain way because people are looking. The easiest thing for that 18, 19-year-old kid to say is, well, I know what to do about this. I'll just remove those artificial standards. I'll leave this home. I'll leave this faith. And there, Dad, you don't have to worry about me anymore. I'm gone. Wow. Uh, One thing I so appreciate and admire and striving to emulate with the three of you is the children you've raised. I mean, they walk with the Lord on their own. They have a self-driven hunger for God. It comes from them. It's not because they're in your orbit. That's what we should all strive for. But where the finish line ties in, there's a horrible, horrible testimony from the minister, uh, the leader of a large parachurch ministry who, who cared for the broken, the orphan, the refugee, anywhere in the world. I don't remember the exact line was that his kids were basically left saying, even in adulthood, Wish we could have been refugees. Wish we could have been orphans. <laughs> then dad would have come. He, yeah. he ha- always had love and time and urgency and passion for them mm-hmm. and never, never for us. We were what he fell back to if nothing else was happening. Wow. You don't want that. That's part of the finish line. I'm home barring a genuine emergency. And thankfully, those are, those are rare. I might get three or four legitimate emergencies a year. where I have to drop everything and stand up in the middle of the dinner and race out. Because we've cultivated this, my family has always understood. Yeah, they can handle it. And and I loved where you talked about too, there are two options often given, Mm -hmm. you know, burnout or rust out. I'd rather burn out than rust out. We talk, you know, and people talk about that. And you said, hey, there's another option. And Bruce, there's so much more we can talk about. And friends, the book is so well balanced. I mean, you even get into the importance of exercise, Mm -hmm. 
talk about breathing, not in a new age sense, but, but, but you know, th- ways that you as a pastor can learn to cope and to do what's right. You talked about your family, your kids, the time you spend, all, all the, you know, the electronic stuff. So, so good. Thank you. And uh, Bruce, uh, this has been phenomenal. Again, I wish we, we had more time. This is one of the longest we've gone and, and for good reason. Sorry, friends. Yeah, no, it's good. Um, but what now, I do. now you know, friends, why he's Ray Comfort's pastor. Crosspoint Church in Huntington Beach. You could look it up online. The book is The Resilient Pastor, How to Remain Effective and Finish Well in Ministry. Bruce Garner is his name. Friends, you got to check it out. Even if you're not a pastor, get it because you'll glean a lot of good stuff in there just for leadership in general in different areas of your life. So there you have it, Bruce. Thanks for coming on. I'm so grateful. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Yeah. Thanks again. Really was a joy, friends. So make sure to check it out. Remember to go to our website, livingwaters.com. Check out all the resources there as well. Go to Amazon, get the resilient pastor. Thanks for joining us, friends. We'll see you here next time on the Living Waters podcast where we have no idea what we're doing. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. I have no idea where that ridiculous saying came from, but friends, we do have winners. Winners for the podcast giveaway. That is the Living Waters podcast. We have Angela from Yucca Valley, California. Yvonne from Crestline, California. Brooke from Clayton, North Carolina. Andrea from Anderson, Indiana. Elias from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Becca from Lincoln University, Pennsylvania. Lowell from Yakima, Washington. Don from Charleston, Illinois. John from Ford, Australia. Good on you, Mike. And Dave from Will and Lane, United Kingdom. Congrats.